So bones or NCIS, which do you prefer? Um, I would say bones because um, it has a woman protagonist. Yes, right answer. I love it. <laughs> I love a good crime drama, especially all the cool technology they use. But I've always wondered how much of it is actually real. So I reached out to Sarah Chu, Senior Advisor for Forensic Science Policy at the Innocence Project, and I asked her about it. My guest today is Sarah Chu, Senior Advisor on Forensic Science Policy for the Innocence Project. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Prabhu. It's so great to be here. Absolutely. But for folks who don't know much about the Innocence Project, could you give us a quick summary on what you do? Yeah. So the Innocence Project is an organization that seeks to exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted. We also have a policy branch of our work where we try to enact laws or change agency policies to prevent those wrongful convictions from happening in the first place. The work that I do is focused on forensic science policy. So among the cases that the Innocence Project has worked on, misapplied forensic science has contributed to about 52% of those wrongful convictions. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So when we categorize forensic science applications as having been misapplied, there are a number of different ways that that can happen. In some cases, the method itself is making claims beyond what the science can support. So for example, if you find a hair at a crime scene and it cannot individualize or be linked to a specific person, we've seen a number of cases where that evidence has been used when scientifically it's known that it cannot do that. What percentage of cases use forensic evidence? Preponderance of them, you'd say? What approximately, how many, out of 100 cases, how many would rely on forensic evidence? So among the cases that the Innocence Project has worked on, forensic evidence was misapplied in 52%. The criminal legal system is infamous for being terrible at tracking data. Sarah, so how does your work help solve the problem of misapplied forensic science? My job is to focus primarily on our federal forensic policy agenda. And I also support my colleagues who do state-level policy work on any issues that might arise in their states. Oh, very nice. So are you on Capitol Hill talking with legislators? What is your typical work day? So I try to learn everything I can possibly learn about what's happening in forensic science and, and police investigative technologies. I think a really important part of my job that has made all the difference is my ability to attend forensic science conferences where I can speak to practitioners and to other leaders in the forensic science space to hear about what they see as issues in the work that they do and to get a sense of what possible solutions are, where we could develop consensus and change how things are done. So I'm sure you have your eyes and ears open for new technologies and how it affects the criminal justice system. What do you think is an important technology that we should be thinking about? So for a very long time, most of our cases were focused on DNA. And so that leaves a lot of cases 
where innocent people wouldn't have been able to access our organization for help. And as we have moved through the years, we realized that there were other ways that we could help. And so what I think is consistent is that our policy work and our litigation work is science-driven. And so if we're taking on cases where there isn't DNA, what we need to do is identify what reliable science we can use to demonstrate that person's innocence. And when you do find that the worst has happened, that someone has been wrongfully convicted, I'd imagine there is a lot of pressure to free that person as soon as possible. But it takes a lot of time, right? Why? What's amazing is that the process to get there Hmm. is so complicated and oftentimes so full of obstacles. We think that our criminal justice system would be receptive to new information, that there would be an openness in the system to say, okay, if you really want to take this on, then let's see what happens. But there isn't. And the criminal legal system is very focused on closure. So just opening up a case in the first place usually takes an extensive amount of litigation. And even before that, I have colleagues in the intake department whose entire focus is to identify all the available evidence in a case to figure out whether the existing evidence can point to innocence or guilt. And it's a complex process. Finding the evidence is difficult. And even when you do, there's often a lot of resistance to getting access to testing. And even with dispositive results, we've seen a resistance to freeing innocent people, even when all the evidence is in. You tell a story of one of the cases involving a gentleman named Stephen. Can you tell us what happened in this case? Yeah. So Stephen Barnes was wrongfully convicted of the sexual assault and murder of a young woman in his town. And his exoneration was the first one that I experienced when I got to the Innocence Project in 2008. And Stephen's case also happened to have forensic evidence of many different kinds. And what I thought was extraordinary about the case is how evidence that is misapplied can really overshadow any evidence to the contrary. So based on a tip that someone thought that the victim got into a truck that looked like Stephen's, law enforcement launched an investigation of him. When Stephen was arrested, he was given a polygraph, which was inconclusive. And we know that there are a lot of problems with polygraph technology, especially back in the day. So the victim allegedly got into his truck, according to the prosecution theory. So they looked at tire tracks from the crime scene, which did not match his tires. They looked at the fingerprints inside his car, and they didn't match the victims. And so all of these pieces of evidence that draw you to think that maybe someone wasn't involved in a crime were overshadowed by other evidence that was misapplied. Honestly, I can't even imagine being in Stephen's position. Knowing you're innocent and going through that trial, what forensic evidence specifically was misapplied in his case? One was hair evidence that was found in his car was determined to be similar to the victims. The soil in the tires of his car was determined to be similar to the soil at the crime scene 
without a determination of whether it was representative of the soil just in that general area. And finally, and I think the most striking example of how forensic evidence can be used without having a firm scientific basis was a jeans print in the dirt of Stephen's truck door. What do you mean a jeans print? Like a print from someone's blue jeans? So it was a print from the back of someone's jeans as they were leaning on the door of his truck. And the forensic examiner took that print, compared it to the jeans that the victim was wearing, and said that they were similar. All jeans would be similar, right? Right. Now, do you think the series of misapplications of forensic science here tell us something about our overall trust in scientific testing without really being critical about the underpinnings of these tests. So with the genes print example, there were no standards at the time. The evidence was given without any information about uncertainty which is core to scientific testing. It just exemplifies how back in the day and even today, there are many instances of scientific evidence or expert testimony coming into cases where you have a technology that has been established by one person and they're the only person who's ever done it and they may have done testing, but they're not going to share it. There is a very, very low bar for what constitutes scientific evidence. Why such a low bar? Could it be because we trust the criminal justice system or is it because we trust scientific testing without sufficiently analyzing or being critical about these tests? Or we have a lack of trust for people who have been accused of a crime or violation? I'm sure you think about this all the time. If you were to offer a theory, what would it be? I think we've othered people who are accused of crime. There's very much a need to get the bad guy at all costs. And when due process isn't prioritized, then there isn't a process of putting on the brakes to say, no, 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 no. We need to really do a deep dive of what the claims are to make sure that they match up with the data. And you also mentioned the trust in the criminal legal system. I think that the criminal legal system is fundamental to how we think about the way society needs to run. To think that it's not accurate is an unbearable mm, thought. I like that. And so there's a reluctance and a resistance to really owning that idea. Because if you do own that idea that our criminal legal system makes mistakes, or maybe even own the idea that it makes frequent mistakes, then the next logical step is what do we do about those mistakes? How do we find out who's been harmed? And when we find out who's been harmed, how do we make it right for them? And to do that, I think makes it a very difficult proposition for us to think about in our minds. Now, to bring it back to Stephen's case, how did all these misapplications play out in court? So he was sentenced to 25 to life, and he spent 20 years in prison before he came home to his family. 20 years in prison as an innocent person. That's, that's so awful. So how did he get out? How did he turn things around? So in the very early days of the Innocence Project, he wrote in and asked for help. And every holiday, his mother, Sylvia Barnes, would send us cookies and said, don't forget my son, don't forget my son. And his family deeply missed him. He was an empty seat at the table every Thanksgiving until he came home. Wow. 
and to hear from them about how much his wrongful conviction impacted their family. And then knowing that their family member was innocent and feeling helpless in a system that had already made its decision and wasn't really interested in finding out the truth is another motivation and inspiration for us as we kept on with his case. And the cookies from Sylvia didn't hurt, but it's cases like this that really keep us moving forward because had the technologies not come about, had Stephen's request for help not been heeded, he would still be in prison in upstate New York today. Wow, Sarah, that's an incredible case. What can we do to prevent other innocent people from suffering Stephen's fate? So it's always been a goal of the Innocence Project to establish some form of oversight, like an FDA for forensic science or investigative police technologies. So as technologies are being developed, we take care of all the scientific evaluations before they're launched. So when these biometric surveillance technologies are developed, the challenges that we see play out are first that often defendants may not know if facial recognition was used in their case and how they came to the attention of law enforcement. And even if their lawyers were able to figure that out, they're not necessarily entitled to any information about that particular technology. And so as A starting point, we don't have a reliable system of transparency. As long as that facial recognition technology isn't being submitted as evidence in court, there are no restrictions on how accurate it needs to be in order to be deployed for law enforcement. There's no requirements for how the technology should be documented. And so even if you were able to find out that the technology was used or maybe who the vendor was, that the entire process that pointed to you may not have been documented in a way that you as an innocent person would be able to use to figure out how you came under suspicion or how you were identified. So you're saying someone accused of a crime where a technology like facial recognition was used doesn't necessarily know it was used in the first place, even though this technology is being used by law enforcement. And if they do know it was used, there's no guarantee they can get access to that technology to test its validity, for example. This reminds me of the Robert Williams case that happened here in Michigan. What do you know about that? When Robert Williams found out that he was identified through facial recognition, and when police showed him the picture of the person who was caught on camera committing a crime, he said, you know, that doesn't look like me. And what really struck me about his case was that it didn't matter that Robert didn't look like the person who committed the crime and that the criminal legal process just continued to churn him through and that there wasn't a thought that, well, maybe we shouldn't arrest him. Maybe we should evaluate this case a little bit more. Maybe we should do an investigation or if there's any other evidence that places that person at the scene of the crime. And all of the work that you would expect to be done in this process to have support for making something as important as an arrest wasn't done. And I think part of it is that there's insufficient understanding of the impact of an arrest on a person, on their reputation, on how other people may perceive that person in the future. And 
so the act of arresting and jailing someone with very little evidence is something that facial recognition allows. And the story about Robert Williams, the story about Michael Oliver, another Detroit man who was wrongfully arrested based on facial recognition, it really struck me that the city of Detroit and the grassroots organizing around the use of facial recognition technology was incredibly strong. And the people in the community were calling on their lawmakers and their law enforcement to stop using this technology. And yet the police commission approved the renewal of the contract with this facial recognition technology company, despite the police chief saying they knew that there was a 95% error rate with the technology. Wow, that's significant. That's terrible. And so it really has to make you think about what that means, that the commitment to using this technology, the commitment to getting someone at any cost, knowing that this technology has such a high error rate, I think really struck me in seeing how Mr. Williams' case played out. It really struck a chord with me too. Tell us what ended up happening. As Mr. Williams was protesting his arrest, the police showed him the picture of the person who was committing the crime. And he made very clear that it didn't look like him. They were both Black men, but they were different builds, different physical appearances, but that didn't stop the process. That's sad, isn't it? So he makes the claim that it's not him. And he says, look, this doesn't look like me. And I think then the police realized, oh, shoot, we may have the wrong person. They wouldn't let him go. He still had to go to court. And when you think about facial recognition technology, like you said, the misapplication of technology in forensic science has incredible ramifications for the individual. Right. I think that more attention certainly needs to be paid to this problem. I think for a very long time, the criminal legal system didn't want to take on this issue as a problem because it would have required having to understand what these technologies were, what their frailties were, and what that would mean to the system. So in the last year, I think we were really starting to realize as a nation how important getting it right is and that science has everyday consequences in people's lives. I hope that moving forward that there's the same openness applied to thinking about how we can address what may be failures in the forensic science system and improve the frameworks for how we use science and technology in the system. And that we, in studying and thinking about forensic science and police technologies, don't forget the role of humans. And what's great about the role of humans is that it's something that's changeable, that we can do without having to deal with all the complexities of having to figure out what's in that black box. And I think presents great opportunities for us to improve how technologies are used. So how do we start making these improvements? So to answer that, I think we have to go back to what our values are, because your values shape your behavior, they shape your goals and all the processes that flow down from it. And I think for too long, we've been thinking of the criminal legal system as in the frame of the crime control model, where we're picking up people rushing them through the system. We want closure at the end. We don't want to revisit it. There isn't a sense of the need for due process because you've got the bad guy and you get rid of them and incapacitate them and you're done. And so having a discussion about what we want today 
from how our system works, I think will be really, really important for us to develop consensus about the changes we want to see and how we can make them happen. Very well said, Sarah. That makes perfect sense. I have to ask you something. Don't worry, it's an easy question. What inspired you to pursue this type of work? Um, this was supposed to be the easy one. I can trace my motivation to two experiences. One is teaching in the public schools. When I first moved to New York, I taught sixth and seventh grade science at a public school in the Bronx. And I quickly realized how overly simplified I had seen the life of my students. And I was being told, you know, you have to get that homework every day. You have to be on these kids to get them to like turn in their homework. But then I had students who were going home and taking care of all their siblings while their parents were working night shifts. I had kids who had incredibly traumatic experiences with law enforcement and had no support for healing. And it just felt like the disparities in society were contributing so much more to their life outcomes than what I was doing in the classroom. And that until those fundamental things like public safety, like justice and equality, until those things were improved for them, that my worksheets meant nothing. The second experience that I had earlier in life was I went off to college seeing things in black and white and you were guilty or innocent. You were right or you were wrong. And I had the experience of being stopped at the border in San Diego. I went to UC San Diego and I was driving friends back from the Mexico side to the U.S. side. And we reached the crossing and Border Patrol asked all of my white teammates, where are you from? Where are you from? And then the Border Patrol asked me, where were you born? And I was born in Taiwan. I was a U.S. citizen, but I said Taiwan because I thought I have to answer honestly. And then I got whisked away into a room. And for the next few hours, I was interrogated. Nothing I produced seemed to convince them. Um, I, I even carried my social security card. That's what a nerd I was. And like nothing could convince them. And that was the first time in my life that I realized that the world isn't black and white and that people could be just going about their lives and be caught up in a system and be wrongfully accused and how powerless a person must feel when they're placed in a position where it's them against the full power of the government. So. That was a tiny experience compared to what many people experience on a day to day. But it gave me a sense of thinking more deeply about our systems of justice, what they mean, who they work for, who they work against, and to listen more to people when they raise concerns. And of course, wanting to help and to make the world a better place. So this was terrific. Thank you so much. There's a lot of insight and I learned a lot, so much to think about. I think my big lesson here is just because something is scientific, it doesn't mean it's either valid or reliable. <laughs> it, could, it could be neither. And sometimes we tend to misplace our trust in things just because they seem scientific. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me on your show.
Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Sarah Chu. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.